Hey, Cracked fans. Before we get to today's podcast, wanted to let all of you listeners know that this mini break episode is also brought to you by our friends at Manscaped. And it's always fun to get into a Manscaped ad read. So let's rock and roll. Folks, does your happy trail look more like a happy highway? Does your bush peek out over your fence? If you had to even think about the answer, you need the revolutionary products from Manscaped. Success is when preparation meets opportunity, and Manscaped's Platinum Package will make sure you're prepared when opportunity strikes. Join the 6 million men worldwide who trust in Manscaped by going to manscaped.com for 20% off plus free shipping with the code NEWBALLS. Please look, if you're going to the U.S. Open, if you're going to the start of the NFL season, maybe you're attending some September college football. You just don't want to be a mess. You want to be tidy. You want to be well-groomed always. Our friends at Manscaped help you do just that. And look, they've got products you didn't even know you need until you use it, whether it's the Ultra Premium Body Wash, Ultra Premium 2-in-1 Shampoo and Conditioner, Premium Deodorant, Crop Preserver, Anti-Chafing Ball Deodorant. Trust me, it's a revelation. Crop Reviver, Ball Spray Toner, Anti-Chafing Boxing, The Shed Travel Bag. They've got everything you're looking for. And again, you can get 20% off and free shipping with the code NEWBALLSPLEASE at manscaped.com. That's 20% off with free shipping at manscaped.com and use that promo code NEWBALLSPLEASE. Use the platinum package because the gold standard is no longer good enough. Manscaped.com. The promo code is NEWBALLSPLEASE. Welcome to the Mini Break, your daily podcast for the biggest storylines, results, and controversies from the tennis world. Today is Friday, September 9th, day 12 of the 2022 U.S. Open in the books. Not only do we know who will be competing for the right to be named the U.S. Open champion, it was a day that left all of us thinking, is there anything this fucking kid can't do. What an extraordinary night of tennis in New York. Obviously, headlined by the fact that Carlos Alcaraz will have the opportunity to play for his first slam title. Alcaraz seemingly doesn't get tired. That's what we're learning about the 19-year-old. A testament to never skipping leg day. Alcaraz, 15 sets in his last three matches, over 13 hours of tennis played. Nevertheless, Alcaraz able to advance with a thrilling five-set victory over Francis Tiafo. a win so immense, so entertaining. You almost forget the fact that Kasparud's going to be competing for a second slam final as well. Kasparud, a four-set victory over Karen Hatchnov, one of the few men in the 21st century to reach both the Roland Garros and U.S. Open singles finals in a single season as such. We got plenty to talk about here on today's show. And as promised to all of you listeners, I decided to bring in the big guns, a man who was on site at the 2022 U.S. Open, part of the incredible U.S. Open radio team, a man you may also recognize as the host of Monday Match Analysis, host of 3A Tennis Show, and host of all sorts of cool things for the tennis channel. Of course, I don't like him, but I think some of you listeners do. It's our friend Gil Gross. Gil, welcome back to the show, my 
my friend and Westoff. Can we get some applause for Gil? He's big timing us. He's interviewing players at the U.S. Open now, my friend. That was awesome. You were fantastic. How are you doing? I'm great, Grusky. Thank you uh, for for those words. Um, I don't like you either. Let's do this. <laughs> Yeah, dude, anything you wanted <laughs> from a Kyrgios Kasparud semifinal, we'll give you here today. I promise. <laughs> exactly. Uh, but no, it was awesome to hear your voice. And obviously you, Mike Cation, the entire team, I could go on and on about all of you. But you guys do an excellent Mostly job. us. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, no, mostly you. Let's be clear. There's no free Mike plugging. <laughs> he doesn't pay us enough for that. Um, but no, I mean, it, it's really awesome to see how you guys paint the picture. And tennis is not the most radio-friendly sport. And, of course, we're off to an opening tangent. It really is good to see you, my friend. Great to have you <laughs> back on the show. We we usually try to do this at least once a slam, so I'm glad we got to sneak it in. Um, but, you know, because you have to say backhand, cross-court, responded to, down the line, a redirect, all of these different things and shot-by-shot shot happen so quickly, it's hard to keep track of all of it. I know you're more in the sideline role than an official play-by-play, but talk to me about that rhythm. Talk to me about what it's like to bring the sport to life, dare I say, with your words. Yeah, it's definitely, there's a pace to it, which is difficult to keep up with, especially when the rallies extend. uh, And and it's, there's a technique to it that is not only difficult, but kind of, unpracticed Mm -hmm. i think that's the problem right is that there are a million people for a million years over the course of a million games calling these other sports on the radio and for tennis now at this point because atp radio is gone it's just the four majors so if if you are you know calling tennis on the radio you you literally are you can't get a lot of reps um which is kind of a funny part of it but (laughs) Like, I just think it's so essential to any sport to have audio, like for for visually impaired, for people who want to drive their car and still follow what's happening. And, and for some people who just like kind of the romantic kind of sound of mm-hmm. sports on the radio, which I'm kind of one of those people. Uh, so I, I really think it's when done well is really pleasant and and i i hope that we go the opposite direction as a sport and uh there's more audio in the future i tell my dad all the time that when i'm doing broadcasts i'm just doing an impression of him doing an impression of wwj news radio 950 traffic and weather together on the eights in the call sam studio we go live to michael gruskin michael how's the traffic out there he used to always do it on our rides home from the airport and so i am also a child of radio i agree with you i will also say and you nailed this point beautifully there is a beauty to the sounds of a tennis match and listening to them unencumbered, but also having someone capable of steering you through what you're listening to while in the car trying to follow along. Like, I will never forget the Sabalenka-Fernandez match. I was on the way to Tennessee last year for that semifinal and listening to it on the radio. Just the drama of it all was perfectly captured. I will also say, and here is a little free Mike Cation plug, We had a camera go out on court six at the National Indoors, which was a deciding court in one of the quarterfinal matches. And so Cation went into radio mode. And I think it's one of the few times I actually, I wasn't really mad at Westoff, but after the match, 
my jaw was dropped because I was like, oh my God, like, what is this? I want to learn about how you do this and this speed and just how fast you have to go. And as soon as we're done, Westhoff goes, Cajun, that was amazing. Like, you killed that. And after we were done, I, I, I look at Westhoff. I was like, you, man. I was like, I know that was awesome, but you don't have to butter him up. I was like, <laughs> come on, man. It would it kill you to throw me one compliment like that? But like to listen to the speed, and you guys have all seen some of the Twitter clips with Mike's call. It does add to the excitement. I agree. I think there has to be an audio component. Yeah, it's like if if this sport is as big as we think it is, it should be available to listen to. Yeah. Like, that's all. <laughs> yeah. Well said indeed. All right, my last question on this, and then we can get into the actual tennis. You got the chance to interview some players. Your favorite player interview throughout your time in New York? I think it was uh, Sinner, who I, I spoke with three times, and I was kind of astonished by his, I guess, his, like, commitment to actually putting thought into every answer and, you know, how much time at some at, at certain points that he actually spent on the court after the match. There was one where he did uh, Eurosport Italy, he did uh, ESPN Deportes, and then he did me. And, <laughs> and he has to sign, right? Yeah. There's a bunch of people waiting for him to sign autographs. So it felt like, you know, okay, he, he won match point. It got to a point where, okay, it was 15 minutes ago. It felt like he should be starting to, you know, try to rush off, you know, to get into the locker room. And and he just didn't. And and he looks you in the eye. He makes a connection with you. And and he was honest after every match talking about how he felt. For example, after he beat Avashka, he was upset. And like a lot of players will do this thing where they're trying to respect their opponent. And after they feel like they played poorly but still won, they won't say anything about it. But Yannick was like, it was a tough day in the office. Like, it wasn't really working for me out there. And and I just appreciated that, okay, you actually care to be honest and to give me good answers here. Uh, and and also, there was something about just how he carried himself that, that seemed very, uh, very uh, positive. So More surprising, how tall he is in person or how well I move to my backhand. Get out of here. <laughs> he's he, he's tall, but like he's lanky. That's yeah. the thing. He's not, it's not, I don't think that he surprised me with his height, but probably like the length of his limbs more so. 6'2 Medvedev. It's like you are a lanky guy. You're just not as overwhelmingly tall. So it's not as pronounced. Yeah. Like he's, he's like impossible to ace. Yeah. No, he's got limbs. Like it's, I mean, I'm afraid. exaggerating, but. No, every time he slides, I'm afraid he's Kevin Waring and that kneecap's coming <laughs> out of his body and you're like a little bit afraid. But no, he's definitely the all-limb team and we'll save it for post-US Open. But it, we when we do our 2022 autopsy, Alcaraz versus Sinner, the race, obviously a proxy for me versus you. We can get into that, I suppose. And much like Carlos Alcaraz, only one of us was on site in New York. So I suppose 
things are sticking to script right now in both matchups. But the reason I wanted to have you here today, of course, is to talk about day 12 of the U.S. Open men's single semifinals in the books. A shout out, of course, as always, to our friends at Tennis Point who understand the necessity of hosting a daily podcast. Remember, tennis-point.com. Use that promo code CR15 for all of your tennis equipment needs. But with that said, Gil, let's talk about the aforementioned Carlos Alcaraz, who just match after match, even more granular than that, though, set after set, point after point, this kid just competes. And to watch Alcaraz maneuver his way through that five-set match over Francis Tiafo last night, and for those of you who didn't have the opportunity to watch the match ultimately for Alcaraz, it was a 6-7-6-3-6-1-6-7-6-3 victory over the 22nd-seeded American. I mean, I don't even know where to start, Gil. It's just like the endless highlight real points, whether it was the passing shot to hold for six all in the first set. And I mean, obviously we saw him go jumping behind the back against Sinner earlier this week. It's the fact that best shot, best shot I've ever seen in person. So you were there, you were in the stadium for Alcaraz Sinner. Yes. I didn't want to ask this, but we're on topic. So let's get to it. What was that match like in person? What, what just the gravity of it? Could you sense it in the crowd? Because watching from afar, it feels as though, and part of what makes this uh, rivalry so special, is that these two players do seem to have a keen sense of the importance of their matchups, understanding this is the guy I'm going to have to go through. This is it. I see it right now. I'm prepared for it mentally. And even if there are some nerves at the start or in the big moments of matches for both guys, there is even for both, that extra 10%, it feels like you get in every point. And I'm curious if in person you sense that as well. Yeah, it definitely had a big match feel, but also the lateness contributed to how that match felt because the crowd at a certain point was sparse, but it didn't sound like that (laughs) because everybody there was so, so invested in every single twist and turn. And uh, I think everybody, and I tweeted this, everyone there felt like they were part of something special. So the energy in that building was was actually incredible. Um, and the the quality of tennis was was the driver of it, right? It wasn't it wasn't okay, like this is a final. It wasn't it wasn't anything other than how incredible these guys were from a, a skill set standpoint and and the tennis that that they put on display that was that was what were was keeping people there until one and t- ultimately two a.m. Yeah, it was just immense the entire scene of it and to see Alcaraz put together that sort of physical performance five plus hours of tennis coming off of a three plus hour match against Marin Cilic the round before you know it, it wouldn't have been. Uh, a bad it wouldn't have been unexpected to see Carlos Alcaraz fall off a bit from a physical standpoint in his semifinal match because again while this guy is clearly one of the generational athletic talents we have seen in professional tennis history I don't think it's hyperbolic to say that this guy just has gifts that no one else in the game's past or very very few have had 
He's still 19. You would think at some point maybe there is a clock that's about to expire and maybe he's used up his quota of superpowers for this event. And yet, was there any moment, let's just start there when we turn the page towards the semifinal, was there any moment where you felt as if he played fatigued, as if he had any sort of dead leg? Because to me, the single most incredible thing coming off of this match is that he didn't is that yeah. we got 100% of Carlos Alcaraz in our 13 in five days, which, again, at 19 years old, your jaw is dropped. Yeah, you're 100% correct because it, it, it would have been very normal for a player who's been through the matches that he went through to you know basically put in a no-show. Um, in, in this semifinal to not have their legs under them. I thought maybe like the first 15 minutes or so of the match, maybe the first 20 minutes, he looked a little bit stiff, but maybe that's just normal. Maybe that's just kind of the start of the match. He's always, you know, going to take a second to for the muscles to get warm. Uh, even after Tiafo won the first set, I, I wasn't attributing it at all to Alcaraz's legs or, or him looking tired um, at the end of the day I think what you said at the top is is correct here it, it seems like he can't get tired it seems like his fitness is actually beyond that now we'll see because he's got to you know he has one more and he went five sets again so the narrative it doesn't end here right it continues mm -hmm. but you know here's a guy who twice this year has had to play two best of three set matches in one day because of rain, rainy schedules, right? Mm -hmm. And on both occasions, he's won both matches. Here's a guy who's now eight and one in five set matches in his career. So I think Can without I throw Garaz, in one more there? Here's a guy yeah. who nine months into the season has not lost a match in straight sets, which again is just another testament to that competitive spirit and the fact that it doesn't matter how his legs feel. He's working his way into the match. Yeah, like you can't dominate him. He's too yeah, good. Exactly. Uh, you have to beat him under, you have to get to pressure situations and play better than him under pressure, which is what, you know, Sinner did at Wimbledon uh, and Sinner did to to, to to an extent in, in Umag and uh, what Cam Nori did. You know, you're not going to dominate him and he's not going to get tired. You have to beat him in other areas because the fitness is incredible. Yeah. No, I mean, it's truly immense what he's able to do in the outer thirds of the court. And just the fact that it really does seem like there's not a single ball he can't track down. Even if you have an overhead, you better hit that overhead perfectly because otherwise Carlos Alcaraz is going to get there. And when he gets that extra ball, you're just in trouble. And it destroyed Tiafo in this yeah. match because what he does, look, he's got some ground stroke power. Don't get me wrong. He can hit big. But Tiafo's game is about staying inside the court, taking the ball early, coming forward, and finishing at net. Mm -hmm. And usually with drop volleys or with drop shots, like that's, that's how he ends points. And he just couldn't get the ball to bounce twice in front of Alcaraz. He started volleying deep. He kept getting lobbed. He just, he could not finish. And I don't think Tiafo is used to that at all. He's, you know, he, his hands are so good. He's such a good volleyer. 
rarely do I think he is confounded by a player's speed on the court. Usually that happens to players who stay back and they they try to hit hit through someone from the back of the court and they can't. But Tiafa was actually coming forward and doing all the right things and just losing these cat and mouse exchanges. He said after the match that he's never faced a player with better movement. And uh, I just think that was the not only is it amazing that Alcaraz was able to show up for the match, but also tactically, the fact that Tiafo only won 53% of his net points and came forward 55 times, that was also a huge reason why technically and tactically he couldn't win the match. I couldn't agree more. I, I want to do the Tiafo autopsy in a second. I will say this, 4-5, 30-40, fourth set, to hit a drop shot against Carlos Alcaraz with all of the prefaces you just mentioned about Alcaraz's speed on that match point and to execute it with the perfection that he did. It was just one of those, are you kidding me? Like, uh, it sucks that Yannick Sinner and Carlos Alcaraz played arguably a top five match of the 21st century. And that it's like, as because that match was so impressive and so seemingly significant from a big picture perspective like this match was exceptional and yet it's always probably going to be the second best match when you look back at this 2022 U.S. Open barring whatever happens in the final and like to your point credit to Francis Tiafo because the flip side of everything you said is Carlos Alcaraz has probably never faced an athletic foe who can match him to the extent that Francis Tiafo did. And even when the first serve wasn't landing, set number one, Francis Tiafo only makes 40% of his first serve. Still, 15 of 17 on those first serve points, 7 of 11 at the net. He moved forward. He put the pressure on Alcaraz and said, okay, do something special. In sets two, sets three, set five, Alcaraz said, okay, I will. And like, that's what makes him so impressive. And I'm curious because I do to sort of put a bow on the Alcaraz conversation. It was fascinating last night to listen to John McEnroe, Pat McEnroe, and Chris Fowler talk about, well, what would you do to improve if you're Carlos Alcaraz? And I actually think Patrick McEnroe deserves some credit for actually putting himself out on a limb and saying, well, look, here are the things I would improve. And they're granular and it's very, you know, it's very minimal because big picture, he's got all of the skills, but increased pace on the first serve, more depth on the second serve, finding that 75% neutral ball so you don't have to swing freely all the time. There are, you know, there are some things you think, okay, Alcaraz could certainly tidy this up. And I sometimes get frustrated that he is so one speed dependent and yet he he just he can take away what you want to do best. He can impose his will against anyone, and he can volley. Like it's just like I talk about those first set net numbers. Alcaraz fifteen of sixteen in the first set at the net, Gil. Like it's just he matched what Tiafa was doing and just ultimately lost a breaker. He's a tremendous volleyer. Yeah, it's uh, a I, joke. But here's the thing: I don't think we should be afraid to say his game is undercooked like he's not there yet he's gonna get better uh it's his decision making is is not there he like you look at all the forehands he missed in the uh 
in the third set. No, the fourth set tiebreak, yes. for example. Some of those were bad decisions, bad shot selection. He hits so big, he doesn't need to go so close to the line. Or he, how about the breaker against Sinner, where he got bageled, where I thought in particular that was just like the slop of I'm going big on the first forehand on all of them. And I, mm-hmm. I think that's another instance where that happens. Yeah, he's going to relax and start to make better decisions. Yes. Uh, and, and you know, he misses too many returns. That's been my biggest bugaboo with him uh, since, I guess, like since Roland Garros is I just feel like he's missing a ton of returns. And like, to me, it's he's so athletic. He's so good in baseline rallies. You got to give yourself a chance to play. Uh, you look at the first set tiebreak. Missed returns, two double faults. So did they didn't get into... Basically, he didn't make Francis play. He didn't let allow himself to play because he was winning the the longer rallies. He was out dueling Francis, but you got to start the point. Uh, and, and Alcaraz wasn't able to do that. Uh, and again, these things surface under pressure. Yeah. So you look at this match. Tiafo wins both tie breaks. Uh, and, and you look at uh, Carlos's break point conversions. Really, like over the last three months, uh, horrible. Mm-hmm. Not good. But... So, uh, you know, he he might win the U.S. Open and all of these things are still true. And and that should just scare everybody because they're they're going to get better. And the serve, as you mentioned, is also going to get better. Well, even with those missed returns, Carlos Alcaraz now this season, a 30.2 break percentage, top five number amongst top 50 players on the ATP tour. And when you're over that 30% number, that's when you're in the elite club. That's when you're talking, for the record, prime Djokovic Nadal were typically between 32 and 34%, where it's worth noting Alcaraz was hanging out earlier this season, just has seen that dip a bit as we head towards the faster surface as the season carries on. And some of that is due to the fact that he hasn't been the best at converting breakpoint opportunities of late. Still, you look for Alcaraz now, 50-9, and nine, Gil. Age 19, 50 wins. Now, I don't have the exact number of teenagers who have done that, but to the top of my head, I'm sure Rafa did it. Maybe Djokovic did it. Maybe Murray did it at 19. I would imagine a 19-year-old Bjorn Borg was doing all sorts of things uh, at that age. But, like, that's your list of men's players who have had 50 wins. And, you know, I say this far too frequently of late on these podcasts. Crack Racket's social life isn't kicking. So I have time to go look up the statistics. And when you've won 85% of your matches in a single season, as he has, no, it's not the 70-80 wins of vintage Djokovic and vintage Federer, vintage Nadal years, but he's in the neighborhood. And when you look at that 80% plus club, now you're talking like prime Sampras's and prime Agassiz and players who are definitively the best player in the game. And I'm not saying Carlos Alcaraz is definitively the best player in the game. I'm saying at age 19 that he's even in this conversation statistically. And again, eight and four versus top 10 opponents, 16 and six versus the top 20 this season. That is a laughable number. And you look amongst top 50 players on the ATP tour, those 16 victories, number one amongst all top 50 players this year. Great stat. It, it it's a joke. Like it it this is why we joke about it. Is he the greatest of all time? No. Is he eliminated from the conversation? Absolutely not. Because through age nineteen, he's been on that pace, which you just can't say that about other players.
Yeah. I don't have much to add to that, but it's like... <laughs> you don't want to wade into the who's hasn't been eliminated from the greatest of all time conversation. You know that's a that's a bit here. That's that's all you. That, yeah. you, can, you can trademark that one. Those not eliminated. Uh, the Fruvertova sisters. Uh, not, not eliminated. eliminated. Jerry not eliminated. Shang, not eliminated. Um, who else? Sinner. So this is a big one. Felix... By virtue of not winning a slam this year, I hate to say it, he's officially been eliminated from the greatest of all time Ooh, conversation. Wow. Sinner's got four more slams because Federer won his first slam at age 21. So that's like the metric we have for you are technically three more slams for Sinner. But he's still in the running for what it's worth. Yeah. Well, here's here's been my take in this <laughs> vein. Uh, after... Um, after Djokovic won Wimbledon, I, I thought it was just crucial for him if he wants to win the slam race because I'm I'm quite certain at cer- at a certain point, if not you know, if not early 2023, I, I think Alcaraz is gonna start to uh steal a lot of these major titles. Sure. And you know, then it look, I mean, Nadal and Djokovic have been winning all the majors. Like, let's not get it twisted. Only the US Open has been up for grabs. Uh I just think that's about to change with Alcaraz and therefore it's going to be harder for uh for Djokovic to come from behind now he's only one behind now but I felt like he had to win Wimbledon so so I really think Alcaraz is now going to start to play a role in this very significant history of who wins this major titles race between Nadal and Djokovic you always get mad at me when I quibble with one of your word choices, I would say it's not even stealing. He's going to own those major titles very, very soon. That would be my differentiation on Alcaraz. Like, he's proven. He's in a Grand Slam final and now multiple quarterfinals in a year. He's a guy who's just going to be in the mix. And three players, here's another stat for you. Three players made the fourth round at all four majors this year. Rafa, Alcaraz, Sinner. That's your list. It's a pretty good list of names. To be on. And by the way, when you're looking big picture at the slams this year, that list kind of makes sense when you think about how this year has unfolded. But yeah, I mean, the numbers for Alcaraz continue to be laughable. 125 and 33s, won 80% of his matches since August 2020. And a lot of that was at the challenger level. But let's be clear, in August 2020, he was 17 years old. From age 17 to 19, 125 and 33. Speaks for itself, folks. During that stretch of time, his break percentage, 32.7%. He's not even 20 years old. He's sniffing around, you know, career averages of Rafa and Djokovic. It's just, it's laughable. Yeah, uh, I have an assignment for you. Okay. Can you, so Tennis Abstract doesn't put break points converted into a percentage. Do you want me to bother Jeff? I've been trying to see, well, no, I mean, yes, I you could bother Jeff, but also uh, one thing on my to-do list has been to see what his uh, return points one percentage is versus his break points one percentage. And uh, because if there's no dip, then I'm just, you know, speaking nonsense here about, right? Like if there's no differentiation between those numbers, then then it it's an illusion that he's worth some break points. I have a smile on my face because you know what the sad thing is? I was like, yeah, I could do it. I was like, I got time. What am I doing on Tuesday next week? Nothing. <laughs> the U.S. Open's over. Um, no, I mean, it's laughable. And the last thing I want to ask you about Alcaraz before we move on, tactically, was there anything that stood out to you in how he managed to advance in this match? What were the things that stood out? 
Yes, thank you for asking. Something did stand out. He uh, he moved back on second serve returns in the fifth set, starting at two all, and it it paid immediate dividends. Um, and and I love this return. I think if you have a big heavy forehand and you're a great athlete, this should be a return that that you use sometimes. Certainly, Kasparud uses it. You saw him in his semifinal playing up on the first serve, moving back on the second serve because it's a commitment. Okay, I'm going to put my forehand in play on the return, which is bigger than my backhand, heavier than my backhand. Um, and and Alcaraz did that. Instead of trying to take these early backhands on the rise, which is a return that he misses too much, mm-hmm. and frankly, his opponent, Tiafo is better at it than him, and it makes more sense for Tiafo to use it because Tiafo needs to play aggressive on the return. Alcaraz is winning from neutral, so don't take that risk right away. So he moves back at two all, and on the deuce side, first point of the game, he hits a big heavy forehand cross court forced error. At love 30, uh, same thing. Uh, let me let me cover all points. Beautiful lob at love 15. Now we go to love 30. Um, then he hits the same exact return, heavy forehand cross court, forced error, love 40. Then Francis double faults. Mm-hmm. So he changes his return position, wins all three second serve points, maybe four. I don't know about that love 15 point. Uh, and, and that was a huge adjustment for him. Yeah, he he really was excellent at just responding to Tiafo's aggression, absorbing what Tiafo threw at him, absorbing all those on-the-rise backhands. And we talked about Tiafo coming to the net 55 times in this match. Alcaraz, 32-42 in the match, 76% conversion rate at the net. I would be fascinated to know how many of those net points for Alcaraz came in response to something Tiafo was doing at the net, meaning how many times did Alcaraz win the point at the net when it was actually Francis who started there early in the rally? 59 winners against 37 unforced errors. Again, our 13 of tennis. He had the New York crowd not necessarily backing him, but shout out to this Gil Gross tweet. He didn't have them rooting against him either. Like as fascinated and as in love as the crowd was with Francis Tiafo. They like Carlos Alcaraz, too. (laughs) And I'm curious if you've been fielding the sort of texts I've been getting, where it's just like, if you're a sports fan right now, Carlos Alcaraz has your attention. Not a tennis fan. If you're a sports fan, Alcaraz has popped up on your radar. Yeah, and he's perfect for this modern modern world of sports where we like to condense our sports into 90-second clips. Mm -hmm. And what makes Alcaraz special is is very apparent in these 90 second clips. The US Open official account even tweeted like midway through the second set that they can't tweet out these points enough. And it was true. There was like four points in the first set in five games that are like must tweet out points because they were just incredible. Uh, and, and you know they're going to get thousands and thousands of likes, and and that's totally abnormal. And, and you know Francis does deserve f- some credit for that as well. Um, but you know Carlos was winning most of these points. <laughs> uh, you know I don't know. Yeah, I, I think it's very and the joy on his face. Mm-hmm. That is another thing that that people really do connect to. He wins these points. He smiles, and it's just like. Wow, this guy's this guy's awesome. 
he's keenly aware of how special he is as an athlete, and yet it's not in a braggadocious way. It's just like, come on, guys, we're all in, like we're all enjoying this, right? I'm enjoying it. I imagine you are too. And the crowd's like, oh yes, we are. And it's just, yeah. you're right. It's just he makes the impossible happen, which, it, and he makes it happen repeatedly throughout the course of a match. Yeah, he looks like he's having fun. Yeah. And 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 I want to make two points about the crowd. First of all, New York loves Francis. Loves him. I was at the Andre Rublev match in the quarterfinal. Rublev was down two sets to love. The crowd gave him nothing. <laughs> it was it was I want Tiafo to win 6-0-6-0-6-0. There was zero Andre Rublev support in Arthur Ashe Stadium. How about in the Nadal match where by the end the crowd was like, wait, this guy's American. Like, oh my God, an American's about to beat Nadal. Let's get behind yeah. him. Forget this. Get Rafa back in the match. Like, And not to say there wasn't a healthy Rafa contingent still there, but this New York crowd discovered American men's tennis this week. Exactly. Uh, there was, They were so loud for, for Francis in that match and, and even in the Schwartzman match. Uh, so... This was a Carlos Alcaraz phenomenon, you know, uh, the fact that look, and I think Tiafo was off thrown off guard a little bit. I actually think it bothered him. Uh, the fact that he went away for, for a little bit mentally in the second, the third set, I thought the crowd had something to do with that. Uh, I, I thought he was surprised because he thought it was going to be uh, a home team, away team environment in his favor. And it wasn't. That is uh, Carlos Alcaraz's popularity right now and, and his connection with crowds, in, in my opinion. And by the way, play for peace exhibition before the tournament. Alcaraz was introduced and played doubles with Francis, Tommy, Paul, and Fritz. And Carlitos got the biggest pop from the crowd. And I t took note of that. You know, I was like, whoa, that was interesting. That was something. And that now we saw it kind of the same thing play out in the semifinal. Bigger primetime ticket crowd, Kyrgios or Alcaraz? Equal mm. is an acceptable answer here. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's probably about equal in New York. Yeah. You know, N New York also, New York likes Kyrgios. Yeah, very much. And yeah. so, no, I, it's, I mean, there were some really good tickets throughout the course of this U.S. Open, and certainly Carlos Alcaraz provides that much more pop. As by the way, we're playing for world number one. Carlos Alcaraz is going to have the opportunity to become the youngest world number one in ATP Tour history. And by the way, there's all these stats and all these first since X, and you know the lists are like Djokovic, Borg, Nadal. Like that's the youngest people to do things with Carlos Alcaraz, and he's always been in that group of young names with his challenger success, youngest to win an ATP match title, et cetera, et cetera. He continues to find himself on that list. He was sensational. On the flip side, before we move over to Casper Ruud, Francis Tiafo. I think in these last three matches, he's been under 55% on his first serve in each of them. And yet, Gil, the biggest thing for me coming out of this slam for Tiafo wasn't the backhand on the rise, because that backhand has always been the more gifted of his two wings. And to be honest, that backhand is what got him into the top 100 in the first place, combined with his physicality. He's always had the skill set to move forward, always had the ability to fire in the slices, the drop shots, the angles. For him to execute even 29 points at the net, dealing with the heaviness of the Carlos Alcaraz passing shots is actually a testament to, uh, to Tiafo's skill up there. But to me, the single biggest development 
is the weapon that has become his first serve. And you were there in person. My college roommate from my freshman year was also there for the Tiafo uh, Nadal match. And his biggest takeaway was A, he's like, I've never seen a tennis player as muscular as Francis Tiafo. Would love to hear your thoughts on that. B, he said the first serve. He's just like, you're playing on his terms behind that first serve because it's an absolute cannon. And look, he made only 47% of them against Alcaraz. Obviously, particularly in set number five, that wasn't good enough to get the job done. That said, if this is the first serve for him moving forward, the ceiling is raised that much more because we know Tiafo can do B, C, and D. But I think the biggest thing for me, Gil, was now this tournament— we finally saw how good plan A can be for Francis Tiafa when that serve is clicking. Yeah, uh, the serve the serve was huge. and It really the- was. It was huge. Like I was like, what? The- His <laughs> T serve on the ad side. I was like, just that cannon down the T. And as a righty, it's your inside shoulder. I used to, and again, we're comparing our 10. You know what the fun part is now that we've played is you can be like, you know what? I kind of get what you're saying, Gruskin. Back when I had a shoulder and could serve comfortably, when I was really feeling it, T ad side was the serve. I was like, I'm hitting this and you're not expecting it. And it's my inside shoulder. I'm kind of coming across it and down. I feel like I can really get the pop on that serve. That's the money serve for Tiafo. That T ad side serve. He must have hit. I mean, he had 15 aces. I think at least four of them were T ad. Yeah, I think the biggest deal for me was that he went to the flat serve yeah. on the first delivery so regularly to the point where the slice was was the changeup. That's exactly. And I think it. right, the slice used to be the the regular serve, the flat serve might be the changeup, the one that he doesn't really hit. So, you know, I just think Wayne Ferreira at a certain point was like, "All right, man, your legs are tree trunks, you have a live arm." Let's let's start bombing. This let's get after serve. it. Yeah, yeah for like, sure. Throw your arm at it. Like, let's yeah. go. Uh, and and one thing that's important if you're going to implement that game plan is your second serve needs to be good. And Francis's second serve is good. So he doesn't need to be afraid to hit second serves. You know, you look at the percentage against Alcaraz. And yes, it's easy to say after losing the match and obviously it's better to make more first serves you know we don't need to be einstein to figure this out <laughs> but well you know i once read a study that said first serve percentage <laughs> is not directly correlated to match success but nevertheless continue <laughs> <laughs> well that's true right but it comes with the territory of going yeah. after it 100% and and then you know you look at you look at the set that that he served a lot of first serves in it was the second set he lost that set. So there there was not there was not a great correlation between first serves in and Tiafo's success in this match or for the tournament because his game plan was when I when I make first serves, they are I'm gonna win the point because they're gonna be bombs and they're gonna be well placed. So I, I like it. You know, uh, they're there needs to be some some math involved um, that that we don't we kind of overlook. Where you know, if you make a hundred percent of your first serves but only win sixty percent, mm-hmm. that is worse serving than if you make sixty percent of your first serves and win eighty five percent of the points. Mm-hmm. So that first serve percentage stat in isolation is is incomplete. It's just an incomplete stat. It's not 
meaningless. It's not meaningful. It gets a, it gets an incomplete rating. Yeah, you uh-huh. have to look at the full picture. The case in point is Maria Sakari, who has had her first serve win percentage improve for the last six seasons. This season, her first serve make percentage dipped below 57%. And we see that trade-off that she's made of being more aggressive on the first serve, but making less of them. This is the first year where that pendulum has swung in the wrong direction. You're absolutely right. And again, you can read about the statistical significant first serve percentage correlated with first serve win percentage. You can find that out on the internet. They exist. The plan A, again, as I like to refer to it for Tiafo. When he has his feet set on that plus one forehand, you just never know where he's going to go. And part of that's the extreme grip, but his ability to take that ball inside in, inside out, down the line, etc. He's got it. The backhand he's got. The creativity, the net skills he's got. I didn't think the forehand return looked particularly vulnerable for Tiafo against Alcaraz or just all week long in general. I thought the racket speed was on point. What was the tactical disadvantage for Francis? You're looking at him. What would you have liked him to do more of? Mm, I don't have a lot of critique. I know. He uh, played a great match. It's like yeah. you lost to a freaking gazelle. Exactly. Yeah. I I think what I would have liked to see from, from Tiafo more than anything is for him to have not gone away for yeah. the period of time that he went away. It was the uh, first 20 minutes of set three where he lost. Yeah. That's where he lost that match. Exactly. Uh, that in particular, like he just wasn't there. And mm-hmm. and all tournament long, he was doing the exact opposite. He was winning every match in straights. He he was not having those rough patches, those loss in that loss in focus, which is something he's really worked on uh, with Wayne Ferreira taking away his cell phone. Um, and <laughs> this was the one match where he really did have that that period of time where he cheated himself during the match. So that would be my critique. I agree with you on the forehand. The technique is a lot better than it was when he first came up. It's a more consistent shot. The return of serve is better. We talked about the serve. Uh, The focus is improved. Uh, I guess the one thing that, that I would add is the fitness is better also where he he's always been explosive, but he hasn't always been very uh, much one for stamina in a long match. Yeah. And now I think he's definitely holding up better physically in best of five when the matches get long. Third straight, fourth round or better at the U.S. Open for Tiafo. It's a second quarter final, first semifinal he accomplished with his run here in New York and I mean, yeah, you look for Tiafo, 26 and 19 overall. He's up to number 19 in the live rankings. Welcome to the top 20. And at 24 years old, that's uh, kind of exactly where you want to be. Now, here is the actual surprise I have for you, as promised on Twitter to all of the listeners. Now, part of it is the goatee I'm rocking here, and you'll all listeners get to see that as it was my penance, I suppose, or what I promised all of the listeners because we started off our Ace of the Day segment 6-15 and 15, is that if we got back to even, I'd rock the goatee for the final day, and we are now up .09 units. Yes, that's right. That's a humble brag, my friend. As such, we have the goatee for the final day, but here's my surprise for you. Here are 10 names in American men's tennis, all born 1997 or later. My question to you, Gil Gross, is of these 10 names, again, 
I want you to just tell me highest upside of the group. And we're going to go through until we have the name who you determine is the highest upside. Because I think all 10 of these players are top 50 talents. And I think the fact that American men's tennis may potentially have 20% of the top 50. I mean, again, you may not have the top dog, but that's a lot of bites at the apple in every draw at every event. And so with that in mind, Gil Gross, you ready to play a little game of American Futures? Let's go. All right, let's do it. Let's start with Francis Tiafo in the number one spot coming off of this semifinal. I ask you upside over the next five years. And that's the question for all of this. We'll do upside over the next five years. Tiafo or Fritz, who are you taking? Tiafo, but at the same time, Fritz is uh, more of a proven commodity. He's, he's a safer bet. You know, Fritz is a safer bet, but Tiafo in the upside department. I agree with you. I just think Tiafo can do more things, B, C, D, and E, uh, than Taylor can, even if Taylor's A is a little bit better. And Francis, more athletic. Yeah, Francis or Tommy. I know. It's yeah, tough. Yeah, it's tough. Guys, there are two guys who the, can do literally everything. And they're very, very similar. Yeah. I like they Francis' really are. first serve better. Obviously, Tommy doesn't have the forehand grip issues. Yeah, but but I I don't you know Tommy's forehand can also be a problem. It can spray at on times. him a little. Yeah, I it agree. can spray on him. Um, so yeah, I think because of it, you know, here's where I think I'm gonna go with Francis because I I love I love how he handles big moments, bright lights. <laughs> And it's not that I think Tommy has an issue in those spots, but I haven't really seen him there. Yeah, round of 16 at Wimbledon was his first second week at a slam. And as good as he's been over the past three months, if he can carry that into Australia, French Open, hold seat at those events and give himself third round shots. I mean, he was in a fifth set with U.S. Open finalist Casper Ruud. Shows you how close Tommy is to being right there in the mix. I agree. And again, all three of these guys... I mean, Tommy and uh, Taylor and Tiafo are inside the top 20. Tommy's like 26 or 27 in the rankings coming off of this U.S. Open. That we're asking the upside of three top 30 players again. Good place for American tennis to be. Opelka or Tiafo? Tiafo. You know, Opelka has some uh, some issues with his approach. Um to, to, you know, his approach to his tennis. Uh, I, I just have questions about about how badly he actually wants to be at the very top of the sport. Uh, he hasn't really expressed that desire as, as readily as Francis has. You know, Tiafo just said, I'm going to win the U.S. Open. And I think if you asked Opelka, are you going to win the U.S. Open? I think he'd tell you, no, I'm not. Uh, so, I mean... <laughs> Just right there, I got to go with Tiafo. It's good reasoning. And Opelka is the guy in American men's tennis whose stock has fallen the most this year because he was so good the first two months of the season. Australia, Delray Beach, you know, indoor clays. It felt like Riley was having a moment. And yes, injuries have played a massive part in why he hasn't been his best self this season. But with all the other American stocks either holding or, you know, in the case of like the Cressys, the Nakashimas, Tommy Paul, Ben Shelton all rising, we shouldn't lose perspective of the fact that Riley's obviously made a Masters final. Um, But 
I agree with you. Like, how can you be higher on him than some of the other guys on this list, particularly given how well all of them have performed of late? So I agree with your reasoning. I also think, again, Riley's a little bit more one speed. I think Francis showed that speed on the serve this week and can do more things. Even if that one speed for Riley is elite. You know, he is one of the three guys holding over 90% of the season. Nevertheless, we move on, and now we're going to slowly start to get a little younger. Max Cressy or Francis Tiafo, where are you? Tiafo, especially because Cressy, we've seen a, a wide range in terms of his level, very, very wide, but most importantly, the surface versatility is not going to be there for Cressy. You know, I'm going when when the surface is right and his his serve is going to be very effective, uh, you know, and, and he has good footing, especially on on hard courts, then I think he's going to be a factor. Um, but, you know, can he beat the elite returns of serve? That's a question. And is he ever going to be in the equation on medium to slow surfaces and that includes hard courts you know you look at the sunshine double and and not being able to win matches there uh the clay court season obviously uh so i i'm still going francis even though tiafo himself uh also is gonna be at his best on a quicker court you're what 23 24 years old one of those two yeah yeah. 23. Okay. okay. Thank you. Wait, humble brag. Um, so you've got at least 50 more years of good tennis in you. <laughs> you get to hit the serve like Cressy for the rest of your tennis career, but you also have to hit the forehand with his grip. Do you take that trade or you just keep your game as is? I would serve like Cressy. Okay. That's, I'm just curious. Cause like, you know, would you, and then make a move for the pros? That's your worst question of the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I'm fine with that. Uh, I thought there were some bad ones early on. All right. Um, no, that's, uh, I'll take it. Um, all right. We're still with Tiafo as the top dog. Again, now we get progressively younger. Him or J.J. Wolf? Uh, Tiafo. <laughs> yeah, I think that one's a little quicker. But does J.J. crack the top 50? I was impressed with JJ. I, I was impressed even when he got beat down by Kyrgios. I thought he played well. Yeah. Uh, it was actually Nick that was really impressive there. Yeah, JJ, I think, is uh, is legit. I wasn't sure at first, honestly. Yeah. Uh, when I first saw him play, I was He's kind a meatball. of... He literally is just a little meatball. Yeah, and I'm just like, are you just s- slapping everything in sight <laughs> yeah. and getting lucky a couple times like are you a real player <laughs> and uh i think i think yes he's a real player yeah my my i went to the 2019 national indoors and one of westoff's friends came with us whatever we were working it and they watched jj wolf play that was his number one year at ohio state when he was the guy and my buddy looks at us and he goes how does his forehand go in He's like, I just don't get it. Like, do you hear the sound? Like, it should hit the back fence. And it's just like, yeah, man. Like, he's just gifted. But all right, I agree, Tiafo. All right, now we get to the fun names I'm sure everyone was waiting for. I got four left for you. We can go through them quicker. Brooksby. Yeah, Brooksby, the limitations on his serve and the limitations on the baseline power, it's always going to be it's going to be more uphill for him unless some of those basic things get better. So absolutely Tiafo. Nakashima. Uh, get, it, it gets tough because Nakashima, there's very few 
holes to poke at this point. And the serve like, has gotten better and better. Yeah. I mean, he is extremely well-rounded. Yeah. And he's like got that sinner mindset from where these past two years, both guys were like, look, we're not good volleyers, but we just have to become volleyers because it's part of the efficiency that we need in our game. And like as Yannick Sinner is the major league version of this, but Brandon Nakashima is the AAA of he has gotten a lot better moving forward and is just far more comfortable at the net. I think his volleys are good. I, I yeah. think they have been ever since kind of working with Pat Cash, who could volley himself. Um, and and the forehand I used to really dislike. And even that shot is looking a lot better to me. So there are no holes. The question becomes, are there big enough weapons? Um, is he a good enough athlete? Um, and if the question is upside that becomes a lot harder. Um, where are you leaning on this? I have, so I have my list of 10 names. This is a big thing that came up in our club tennis group chat, which is where I test run all of my ideas. Um, and I have Nakash. So I've yet to ask you a guy I have above Tiafo. I have Fritz four, and that's why I haven't vehemently disagreed with you. Tommy Paul five, Tiafo three. Now these next two guys upside wise, you're going to laugh at one of them, obviously. Um, I have Nakashima six. Like I, I agree with you. I like anything we said about Tommy, we can say about Brandon. Like, is Brandon quite as explosive of an athlete? No, but he's a little bit more solid on that forehand wing, and you just feel like from a standard deviation standpoint, the floor for Brandon is a little higher. You know what you're going to get yeah. from him, match in, match out. And so I have him six on this list. And again, I have all of these guys as top 50 players, which speaks to their immense potential. These next two are the interesting one. And he's the hottest thing since sliced bread, Ben Shelton, who's number two on my list. I you here's I see, my reason. Can I, I make the I case? I see where for you're you? coming from. Yeah, go ahead. So it's talking to players who have faced Ben. And I've shared this anecdote before, but I was speaking to one of his SEC foes uh, during the course of the college tennis season. And I was just like, what makes Ben such a difficult player to play? And I apologize for the plethora of swear words I've used in this podcast. But he goes, Alex, when Ben makes the slice serve out wide, you're just f***ed. And he's like, there's no <laughs> other way to say it. He's like, that's just it. He's like, I don't know how else to describe it. Like, if he makes that slice, you lose the point. Because now he's got a plus one forehand from his inside hip, and he hits his inside out so well, but he's just as comfortable roping that ball inside in, and you're just like, I don't know what to do. Similarly, he'll serve in volley. Extraordinary athlete. I was having this discussion with my little brother yesterday as well. Six foot four and fluid is just what you want out of your modern ATP player. That's Ben Shelton. Another thing every coach loves to hear, tall, lefty, that's Ben Shelton. It's still very young. But guess what? He's also still just 19 years old. Like, that's the underserved fact, is that he is still having all of this success as a teenager. And is he Carlos Alcaraz? No. Did he beat Kasparud at Cincinnati? Yes! Like, <laughs> I I just... Because I don't see the, the glaring weakness for Ben moving forward. And I just think he's capable. He, again, I see the well-rounded skill set. He's comfortable doing a lot of different things. Do I need to see it on clay courts? Of course. His slider on grass courts, good <laughs> f***ing luck. Okay, um, so question. Okay. What is his biggest, what is his strength okay. on return games? 
you know, obviously the strength of his game is the serve, and and I I did see a lot of his match against Nuno Borges in person at the at the U.S. Open, um, and I I'm impressed with his athleticism for his size. Um, how does he break serve? In if you're to pinpoint one area, it's twofold. A, you give him a look on a free swing on the forehand. He's going to take a big cut at it. And yeah, he can miss it. But when that forehand lands, now he's on his front foot. And you talked about the adjustment Elkaraz made playing six feet behind the baseline. At these professional events, with all that space back there, that's an adjustment Ben will learn to make to take that bigger cut on the return. On the flip side, it's how condensed the backhand is. It's that short backswing. He can split step, take it on the rise, take time away from you, reset things at neutral. Now, again, does he have to get more consistent as a returner? Absolutely. Will there be a transition for him as he faces elite servers, particularly if they go big at his forehand? Absolutely. But it's not a glaring hole. It's a hole that give him a year of going up against that serve. And that's the other big thing for Ben is I watched the jump from going into college to his freshman year. And then the jump he made the past year as he played better competition, just he always was able to match their speed. And I think that's the thing that's so scary to me about Ben. I hope I'm answering your question here. Is that much like Francis, much like Tommy, much like Alcaraz, he's just one of those guys who says, oh, okay, the better you want to play, I'm da- like, I'm in. Like, And I think that works to his detriment sometimes. Sometimes he'll play down to the level of his competition. But there is no ceiling for him in terms of playing up to that level of competition, and he's a primetime performer. Yeah, he's got a good background, certainly, in terms of— Wait, did his dad know. play professionally? Is <laughs> his dad his coach in Florida? Look, I, I like that. Like, I just yeah. think you, you see there's some osmosis there yeah. when you're the son of a professional athlete or the daughter of a professional athlete where you kind of understand what's expected, how, what it's going to be like, how you need to go about your business. So uh, I, I love that. I can't actually argue with you here. I want wow. to. I want to, but I can't. Like, I, look, have I not seen enough of Ben Shelton to to really feel confident about about commenting on his upside? Yeah, I I, I haven't. I've I've watched him a little bit, and um, I I want to see more. But there there's a couple things that would make me argue with you okay. if I didn't think he moved well. I would argue with you because I don't think you can get to the the top of the game without moving well. I think he does move well. Um, he obviously checks the box of of weaponry and firepower, so you, you, there can't be any arguments there. And um, there's no glaring weakness that's going to make me argue with you either. You know, I haven't, I don't, I can't look at his backhand and be like Grusky can't hit a backhand. Yeah. Uh, like there's no, there's nothing there. So I'm just going to agree with you. All right, I'll take it. So him over Tiafo? Yeah. Okay. So again, by proxy, he's thus over all the previous eight players we played as well. The last one, and Baylor coach Michael Woodson's going to get mad at me because he's always like, well, "Why aren't you taking Brooksby?" Blah 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 blah. You know, I love you, Coach Woodson. But my number one name is still Seppi Corda. Like I still think he's the guy this next five years in American tennis. And the anecdote. I've shared before, we spoke with him at the Western Southern Open. He shared this at the Cracked Interviews podcast. Do you know this is the first season he started lifting weights all year long? He goes, yeah, my back's been injured. I haven't been able to do these things. It's like, 
yeah, like, and you're already this physically gifted and just, I've said it before, I'll say it again. Djokovic, Zverev, Korda. When the backhand is working, that's how highly I think of Seppi Korda's backhand. He has the size, he has the serve, he has the family. Like, I, I just like, it's everything I see in Ben. I just, I like the totality of Sebi's game. It's just like Sebi's just like a little bit cleaner in terms of a technique perspective. You have tweeted that thing yeah. about Corda, right? I, I maybe you it's, did. It's it's possible. I don't, or I don't remember. I no, because you. I'm saying. Well, I I think I heard it early in the week uh, from Brian Clark, who works with us on U.S. Open Radio, uh, and yeah. uh, or you know, no, maybe I heard it from Jim Courier. <laughs> not not at the U.S. Open. That For the record, and by the way, they're both name drops. We love you, Brian Clark, who I know listens to the show from time to time. But you're like, was it Brian Clark or was it Jim freaking Courier? <laughs> like, they're often confused, so I see why you'd be there. <laughs> oh, that's a good point. Um, okay, whatever. Yeah, it's a great – it's it's eye-opening. Uh, I, I agree. You know, Sebastian – so Ben Shelton – when we were going through this exercise wasn't on my radar here. Okay. I didn't know that he was coming up. But Corda was the guy in my mind who I expected to say yes is above Tiafo. Uh with that said, I just don't think it's a given. So I just want to yeah. be like so clear about this. There's no guarantee that Corda is is gonna be a top ten player. Like he he needs to stay healthy. We have seen how injuries can destroy the the trajectory of a player who looks very much destined for the top 10 extreme sad example Hyun Chung mm-hmm. um another example less extreme Borna Chorich who got to number 12 Joaquin and is now back in the top 20 who yeah. was done being a pro by the time you were born yeah so like this is this is a real concern but um and I also think I I don't it's weird cuz his forehand it looks good to me. Like the technique looks pretty good. He's a talented ball striker. I don't know why he misses so many forehands, especially long, uh, which is something that I think has plagued him in a lot of his losses this season. But uh, you look at the effortlessness of the movement, the size of his backhand, the size of his forehand, um, the the serve technique is good. It just needs to get bigger, and I think he just is going to get stronger, and it's going to happen. There's uh he's really he he can really be a uh an incredible player if he develops a little bit more physically and, and comes into his own because uh there's just nowhere to hide with, with his ground stroke power. Uh he can take the racket out of your hands. Yeah, no doubt about that. And Corda versus Paul was a sneaky fun week one match that we will fade into the background given everything that's happened in week two. But with that said, yeah. let's and we're not gonna spend nearly as long on Hatchinov Rude because I think that match was pretty straightforward from a tactical perspective. And, you know, I gotta give myself some sort of ammo to talk about in the Monday post match show, but Casperud continues to do it. Obviously, another Grand Slam final for the 23-year-old Rude French Open, U.S. Open finalist now as well. He earns a 7-6-6-2-5-7-6-2 win over Hachinov. I mean, look, the big numbers in this match. Kasparud makes 64% of his first serves, 57 of 69, won 83% of his first serve points, 53 winners against 34 unforced errors, 20 of 23 at the net. The word that comes to mind is efficiency. 
And that efficiency has been something that has been a persistent quality in the success Root has had over the past two and a half years. Not only is he 44 and 15 here this season, 112 and 40. So winning over two thirds, three quarters of his matches over the past two and a half years, which is quite a run. When you look at it, big picture, of course, you look for Kasparud, it was how quickly he identified what he had to do tactically, which is A, get Hatchinov hitting that forehand on the run, B, opening up the court by attacking that Hatchinov forehand, not just sort of monotonously attacking that backhand corner because Hatchinov's a lot better on that backhand wing than the public perception seems to be. I mean, Rude just had Hatchinov on the string. And he played one bad service game, 5-6, third set. And, like, other than that, this was Casper's match from the start. I thought he did the majority of dictating. And I thought if you're asking both players, did this match go according to script? Obviously, for Casper, I think it's an unequivocal yes. I think if you're hatching up, you're like, well, I think this third and fourth sets went to script. But outside of that, I thought this match was – or maybe the second and third sets. But outside this match was pretty much on Rude's terms. Yeah, First the root, the 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 root forehand kind of took over now. Yeah, I, Hatchinov nice. doesn't have Hatchinov doesn't have the foot speed to really defend against Rude's forehand, especially when he's hitting it from the backhand side of the court, which was just it just felt like as soon as Rude hit a forehand from the ad side, the point was over. It was just done. Now, but I think the big revelation here was not that Rude's forehand was, you know, enormous and and what because you know you could you could have guessed that. I think Hatchinov expected that in a back in the backhand the backhand exchanges he was going to be dominant and find a lot of joy, and Rude's backhand is just it can't really be taken advantage of anymore. And this is such a recent thing because as, as if you if you talk to me at at Roland Garros and I'm looking at you know the Nadal final uh, and and previewing that match or even analyzing that match after the fact, it's just look this rude backhand. It's too slow. It's a problem. You you can't you can't have a ground stroke that is as slow as that because time is such a precious commodity and the best players with time. They are going to hurt you. Um, and what Rude has done is he's taken that backhand wing in, in record speed. Usually improvements don't happen this quickly. And he's taken it from uh, a high, heavy topspin, lots of shape, very loopy kind of shot to a shot that goes straighter and faster. Mm-hmm. And that's a big deal because now he can hold his own uh, on in his backhand wing. And I, I think that's been the big key for him. Well, the case in point is the backhand pass he hits to clinch the breaker in set number one, just a down-the-line rope that he hits. And, you know, I talk about the efficiency, not to make Kasparud sound boring. Not only did he have that backhand rope, but the forehand down-the-line winner after Hatchinov had him stretched outside the alley to secure the break for 3-1 in the fourth set. You're absolutely right. 
big picture, it's the fact that Kasparut does continue to improve on every little aspect of his game. And again, the 53 winners against 34 unforced errors, he wasn't doing a lot wrong in this matchup against Hatchinov. And certainly Karen had some success with his own serve plus one combination, and he made 68% of his first serves. He won 68% of those first serve points, 43 winners against 41 unforced errors. He went unbroken. In set number three against a guy who last year was a top 10 returner on the ATP tour. Again, if I were to ask you tactically, what was the advantage for Kasparud in this match? What do you think he did most frequently to break down the game of Hatchinov? Would it be the serve? I know I saw you tweeting about the fact that Kasparud has become just a top 10 server in the men's game. And by the way, the numbers suggest as much. Um, what was it about Rude that separated him in this match? I, I think it was taking away the supposed advantages of 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 Hatchinov. Sure. Which is backhand and surf. I thought it was spreading the court for what it's worth. Just his ability to uh, – the other thing would be don't let him hit with stable feet. It was just like – it felt like unless Hatchinov landed a first serve, he was not hitting a forehand with his feet planted. Um. Okay, yes, I, I I agree. Um, but in terms of like I'm just saying like if you were to argue, make an argument before the match, why where is Hatchinov better than Root? What would you have pro, said? Pro, honestly, I would have said the backhand. Yeah, and and maybe that's it. Yeah, no, you would so, talked uh, about earlier. Right. So the serve was kind of a question mark for me. I'm like, okay, like uh, Rude serve is really good, but I still think the six foot six guy can outserve Casper yeah. Rude. Now, you know, you talk about the first forehand, and there's a difference between those two big time, mm -hmm. and and that's why, that's why like there's serve, but are we isolating that shot or are we actually looking at the total package? Yeah. But even if you just look at the serve, you look at miles per hour, and there's a one mile per hour difference there. Mm -hmm. There's a six inch height difference. And there's a one mile per hour difference in in serve speed, and I don't think Hatchinov hits his spots better than Root. Yeah. Uh, so there is a legitimate question about who has a better first serve, uh, and I just feel like there were no advantages for for Hatchinov here. I thought he hit his plus one forehand when his feet were set as well as Casper did in this match. I mean, we saw that in set number three when Hatchinov had the opportunity to hit the big serve, move forward. He was absolutely putting pressure on Casper. I guess where I, I mean, where I agree with you is first of all, just the slice tee on the ad side. I know that's one of my favorite serves, but the way Casper hits that to open up the plus one forehand, you're just frozen because is he going to go inside out with that forehand? Is he going to go inside in with that forehand? He hit the inside-in forehand particularly well in set number four. Kind of got back to the basics. Hatchinov just—he just kind of pressured. He like he just—he got impatient at the start of set number four. Even in winning set number three, the way that he did, you could tell he was getting frustrated because he kept approaching Kasparud and it kept failing at the start of set number four. And it was like, well, what else am I supposed to do? And I think Patrick McEnroe pointed this out. He kind of looked at his box to say, like, this was the playbook. This is what we said I had to do. Yeah. Why isn't this working? And that is my continued problem for Hatchinoff. Is it's just like when things go to script, he looks great. For all of his physical tools, though, he's just not an improviser. Yeah, so two two things on this. 
the first thing is I think I think his team did tell him approach the backhand. He can't pass on it, mm-hmm. which was true like four months ago. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> true. Uh, so so I think that was part of the frustration, and then there was uh, another layer of frustration in uh, the fact that he just doesn't have good forecourt improvisational skills, as you alluded to. His hands aren't good. And there are crucial spots in that match where where that really, really hurt, uh, whether it be forehands from inside the baseline, where he missed two in a row, I believe, uh, to, to give the breakaway in, uh, I think, the second set at one all, where, where Rude really started to, to run away with things. Uh, in the tie break, when he had kind of this easy pass, he had his slice grip on the forehand side, and the lob was open against Rude, and he just gave him an overhead because uh-huh. the lob was was too shallow. And it was pretty it would have been pretty routine for a player with just better feel with the slice grip on the forehand. Um, and then just some of the volley misses that we we regularly see from him. Whereas Rude was automatic in the front court. You know, he steps in with that forehand, he finishes easy volleys. Um, and that's another that's another area where where Casper was better. I agree. Again, I just think from the start, he was a little bit more efficient than Root at executing everything he wanted to do. And now you look again for Casper, who, for what it's worth, overall in this 2022 season, Casper Root now, uh, I believe, is third in top 10 wins. He's got 11 that trails only Nadal and Alcaraz. You look for Root now. He's in his sixth final of the season. That trails only Alcaraz, who has seven. I mean, you look for Casper now, again, a ridiculous 44-15 and 15 overall. He's going to take on Carlos Alcaraz for the shot to ascend to the world number one rankings. We have number one versus number two in our men's and women's finals, Gil. Carlos, your number one player right now, rude number two, but obviously the winner will secure that number one spot. We talked about parity so much this season. And again, this is where we can wrap the show. You've given me far more time than I anticipated, though probably far less time than you anticipated. <laughs> um, you know, looking at this matchup, um, I guess, A, the gravity of it, the fact that they are playing for world number one, the fact that the winner will also ascend to that world number one ranking on the back of that first Grand Slam title you know, it just does feel like we talk about the generational shift so frequently here at Crack Rackets. Well, this is it. This is your moment. Like two guys competing for world number one, both under the age of 25, competing for that first major title. Big picture perspective, even before you look at the match. What does this opportunity, this moment mean to professional tennis? It isn't, is it? And it isn't, it isn't. Yeah. Um, it Go isn't on. in the respect that. Well, uh, Nadal and Djokovic has won, have won, I think, six of the last eight majors. Yeah. And the U.S. Open has been the major that's up for grabs. And then we can do this big, this is the this is the moment, this is the line of demarcation. And then four months later, we're, we're in Australia and Nadal or Djokovic wins. Yeah. A- and now what? So it's just, I just don't like kind of the back and forth as much as it is like, look, it's happening. It's happening slowly. Uh, I think Alcaraz is is one part of this equation that is is very much 
going to to play a, a role in being a disruptor in what Nadal and Djokovic are able to do even at the biggest tournaments. But right now, uh, we are not in Nadal and Djokovic decline at the majors, really. You can't really say we are, given the year that Nadal has had, the fact that Djokovic got to play two of the slams this year and won one of them. You see what I mean here? Yeah. No. Yes and no, because here's the difference is I think now these guys are good enough to beat him. It's just that Rude in a slam draw, you know, again, without Djokovic in it or the two times he didn't have Djokovic in his path, this U.S. Open at the French Open, you know, he gets to the final. Carlos Alcaraz beats Nadal, beats Djokovic early this season. Now he's getting to a final as well. I guess the summation of my argument would be the data points are adding up. Zverev's a slam finalist. Medvedev's a slam champion. Tsitsipas is a slam finalist. Berrettini's a slam finalist. You know, Elkaraz, rude slam finalist now as well. There are more guys now who have taken small bites out of the apple, and it just, I think, will make more sense collectively to the tennis world when one of these guys knocks off a Djokovic or a Nadal at the slam. Like, for instance, the Tiafo react or the reaction to Tiafo beating Nadal was grand, but it wasn't like, I don't think people were that shocked by the result because, and a lot of that had to do with Rafa's health. I get it. But it just feels like collectively we're a bit more prepared mentally for the shift, if that makes sense. I agree with that. I mean, it's not. Yeah, talk about moving the goalposts. Yeah, yeah, no, I'm I'm with you on that. And also let's let's acknowledge that if Alcaraz does become world number 1, um and I'll get to root in a moment, as a 19-year-old, that is that's an enormous thing. Like I I know that like you don't really get anything special in theory for doing it at a young age, but like does it put into context how special he is for a 19-year-old right now and how incredible this 2022 season has been. I mean, I I predicted, I forget if it was seventh or sixth, but at the start of 2022, I predicted Alcaraz to finish the year either, I think, sixth in the world. And that at the time was bold. I was actually (laughs) sticking my neck out and, and making an ambitious projection for Alcaraz's 2022 season. And he's blown it out of the water. So it would be a real a real cherry on top for him to reach number one. Um, I also think that year-end number one is far more important than uh, becoming number one at any particular point in the season, so I will throw that out there as well. And, and for Rude, you know, it's in a similar respect, who would have thought? Who would have thought in 2022 Rude would get there? Yeah. Um, you know, his, his results, making a hardcourt Masters final in Miami, uh, breaking through at, at Roland Garros, which we all knew was coming, and it came in a big way, and, and then doing this at the U.S. Open, um, I still think Berrettini is the biggest win that he's had in his career so far. I think Berrettini in the quarterfinals. Um, it, it's enormous for Casper, who you know quietly kind of goes about his business and improves, and is uh, has in some ways flown under the radar compared to some. Um, I'm I'm happy for both of them. Yeah, I'm gonna let and that I'm go. Glad, I'm glad. Oh. I'm glad it comes down to this, by the way, because yeah. if Tiafa won the U.S. Open and Rude became number one, he was going to take a lot of hoopla. Take a lot of crap. Yeah. He was 
take a lot of crap, which would have been undeserved, right? It's like, how dare Rude become number one? <laughs> what do you want him to do? What do you want him to do? He, he, he comes out with a press conference or a little notes app note, like, I have decided to forego the world number one until I win my first <laughs> major title. I will pass the ranking. While I appreciate the opportunity from the academy, I don't feel properly prepared, and therefore I will allow Raphael to retake the spot. Yeah, you're right. And the point is, Kasparud, age 22-23, he's made back-to-back year-end finals. I challenge all of our listeners, go look it up. How many players before the age of 25 have more than one year-end finals appearance? I imagine it's a narrow list. Or maybe even before the age of 23, let's uh, 24, let's go with Rude and give him the extra year. To do it in back-to-back season speaks to how he has established himself as one of the guys at the top of the game. By the way, Nadal, Alcaraz, Rude, and Tsitsipas have all officially clinched their spots. We know half the field. Will Rafa play? That's a question. I'll allow you guys to explore on 3A Tennis Show. With that said, I'll save the Karen Hatchinov debrief. How I mean, talk about the most confounding player on the ATP <laughs> Tour. Because just from a superficial perspective, I see all the tools. Like, I see everything I want in a modern ATP player. The serve, the forehand that can be weapons when you have time, the backhand, the physicality. He can do a lot of things. I just don't know what he does best. Or I And I know the fact that there's going to be those ba- – you know what? We're doing it. Where are you with Karen Hatchinoff? What is your takeaway from? I mean, first slam final, obviously a massive success back into the top 20 yeah. for the first time in a year. But I just like, if you ask me what's his ceiling, I still would say even seven years into his career, I have no idea. Yeah. So I feel a little bit unsure about this because I I didn't really get to watch the Curios match closely um, for for you know reasons having to do with my situation in New York um and and that that's the win that that is surprising to me right because i mean Carreño Busta is a head to head he owns uh we we've gotten used to seeing him basically beat everyone he's supposed to beat make fourth rounds at majors like all of that is normal it's the Kiros win that i'm not really sure how to interpret it um at the end you know i think technically speaking he he doesn't serve big enough for a six foot six guy. Uh, he his movement is good for his size, but you have to say for his size. And we've seen some players who actually forego that qualification. And and you know Hatchinov does not. And uh, and he he can't finish at net. He he doesn't have hands, which which hurts him. Um, and then the forehand consistency, especially when he has to move inside the court to hit it. So I think those are the issues. We know, you know, he, he's a, a really good ball striker. He has consistency. He has rally tolerance. He has a beautiful backhand. He has he's a also big a good serve. mover for his size. You he's can also say a good on the mover. flip side. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Like you can say, uh, it's a, his movement is a strength because he's a good yeah. mover for his size. But his movement is also a weakness yeah. because he's, <laughs> he's only a good mover for yeah. his size. <laughs> Exactly. Well said. No, I, I think that's a good summation. But that's the thing is there's enough pieces there. Again, this is a December podcast where it's like, where does Hatchinov go from here? That said, final two questions for you. Uh, just straight up predictions. Let's start with the men's side. And again, I am going to drop some, not really stats, but just some names. Carlos Alcaraz, youngest players to enter the top two of the ATP rankings. Becker, Borg, Nadal, Alcaraz. Here are the players under 20 years old to make a slam final. Borg, Vlander, Becker, Edberg, Chang, Sampras, Nadal, Alcaraz. 
Not the worst lists to find oneself on. That said, you look for Kasparud, fourth Scandinavian man, I believe, to make the U.S. Open final because that's exactly the sort of stat all of us were looking for. Of course, you look uh, for Kasparud as well, again, on a short list of players who have reached the U.S. Open and Roland Garros in uh, finals in the same season. A lot of good names on that list. Lendl, Federer, Nadal, Djokovic, Borg, Vlander, Agassi, Laver, etc. That said... Which way you lean in, Gil Gross? Who's taking home the 2022 U.S. Open title and emerging as the new world number one? Can't go against Carlos Alcaraz right now. Um, I, I've i actually felt all year that he was going to win the U.S. Open. Mm-hmm. Like, that was kind of my inkling all year. You know, this is the Open major. He's got some time to get used to things and mature a little bit. It, it's going to be his time. You know, uh, Novak can't play. Uh, it's going to be his time. Then I, I saw him in Canada. I saw him in Cincinnati and I went back on it. I was just like, you know what? Never mind. Yeah. I, I don't, I don't, <laughs> I don't think he's, he's handling, you know, pressure well enough at the moment, which he admitted to. And I went back on it. And, and now I'm just kind of back where I started, where I, I just feel like this makes a lot of sense for Carlos Alcaraz to win the U S open here. And, uh, there's there's becoming you know there's starting to be very few holes that you can poke with Kasparud with the improvement of his backhand the size of his serve and forehand obviously are the, are the strengths uh, how much quicker he is around the court uh, but i i do think Alcaraz in almost every area has a little bit extra mm-hmm. yeah, i think that's really well said i also think the inside out forehand and kick serve of Carlos Alcaraz are still the sort of weapons that are capable of exposing what little weakness remains on that Kasparud backhand wing. And so I'm leaning that way as well, but I'll save it for our final ace of the day segment. With that in mind, match may have already started. I won't because super producer Daniel Westhoff's a beast and it starts at 4 p.m. Eastern time. So he's got 48 minutes to do the editing. Iga versus Owens, who you got? I have Jabur. I just think she's wow, playing better. Wow, now yeah. we're talking. <laughs> yeah, I think she's playing better than Iga um, at the moment. The What's impressed me about Jabur here are the meat and potatoes ground game. You know, it, it hasn't been so much the backhand slice and, and the variety of the, the drop shots, the change-ups, the net play. I really think that this is the most confident I've seen Jabur hit her drive forehand, her drive backhand, um, not not shying away, not being af- afraid of the long rallies or bailing out of the long rallies. And and for that reason, I I just think she's uh she's at a super high level right now. She's uh her her first serve has been really, really good. And I think she'll she'll make Iga defend, she'll put her on her heels and she'll control the match. Yeah, I, I think that's a very good argument to make. Here's my point is that I don't think Owens I think Owens is playing better than Iga, but not well enough that Iga's not gonna be able to problem solve her way out of it as she has throughout the course of her matches. And I think the difference between the pace of Sviantek and the pace of the Kudermatovas and the Rogers and some of the players Jabur has already played Garcia, it's more topspin based. And I just think it's harder for Jabur to do the things she's she likes to do on the court against such a heavy ball. And so that's why I'm leaning Iga. It's the totality of things she can do in that, you know, like Arena Sabalenka hit, had 13 service games in their semifinal match. How many breaks did Iga have? Out of 13? Yeah. 
Six? Seven. Seven. <laughs> Seven. Like she and her break percentage for the season is over 50%. And you look at that and you think, well, how many times did she just blow people out of the water? It's like, well, no, no, no. Even against Arena Sabalenka, like the breaking serve, not the holding serve, the breaking serve is what separated her in that match. And it's just like, does Owens hit the serve big enough to disrupt the generational talent that is Iga Swiatek as a returner? I just think the answer is no. And so that's why I'm leaning Iga, but I like that we disagree. Yeah, well, look, really good point about the top spin. Uh, I do think Iga's gotten away from that just a little bit on these quick hard courts, taking the ball early and kind of flattening it out. Um, and I actually think I, I, I kind of wish she gave herself some more time, moved back and and hit the heavier ball. Um, and uh, it's going to be fascinating to see like how well does Iga attack Jabir's second serve because uh, we saw against Garcia who's a great aggressive returner, she couldn't really get get a hold of Jabir's kind of low slice second serve. This is going to be interesting. Yeah, it's going to be a fun one, folks. A fun championship weekend to conclude the 2022 Grand Slam season. With that said, my friend, I'm sure you're busy. You got things coming up. Obviously, U.S. Open Radio in the books. I saw Monday Match Analysis is back rocking and rolling. The Gilgros YouTube channel is back up. What can we expect from you, not only uh, during championship weekend, but over the next couple of weeks? Yeah, keep it posted on on YouTube, Gil Gross and Three, a tennis show back in action after the U.S. Open. Um, and then um, wake up uh, early mornings, week after a major for some uh, some tennis channels as well. Are you guys? I know, do I know you'll be watching. Well, are you going to do an episode on just Rafa's foot? Like, do we bring in a foot expert to describe how he's just no, playing foot's with a dangler good. right now? Nah, man, ablation, ablation, ablation for the win. <laughs> Good. Ablation for the win. That's the title of the show. Lock it in. <laughs> uh, right there. That's perfect. But now looking forward to it as always. And uh, I know I let you know I'll be back out in California at late September, early October. You know, I, I joke about this. Uh, I think once you're done with college as a human, you just don't make a ton of new friends because like you're in the work world. And yeah, you'll have work friends, but like, you know, are you really going to be going out and socializing like crazy and finding a new member to add to your core crew? I don't think the answer to that question is always yes. I do think it's worth noting that on my birthday this year, I will be in Los Angeles with arguably one of the three friends I've made since college, and that would be you, my <laughs> friend. So I think we're going out. Like, get ready. Yeah. We're gonna we're gonna hit the town. Watch yeah. out, Culver City. There is an Alex Gruskin Gil Gross combination on the loose. Let's go. Yeah, exactly. We're oh man, that Westfield Mall or whatever it's called has never seen anything like this. No. Yeah, no, no, no. no. We'll hit the real town. You'll have to uh you'll have to show me the the spots. Um, yeah. But with that said, Gil Gross, as always, it is a pleasure. I appreciate any final thoughts, by the way, before I wrap this show. Uh, no, Texas might be back, though. Did they? Are they winning? Yeah, you got to turn it on as soon as we're done here. I know it was 17 16 when I last looked. They it's didn't still, score, did it's, they? It's, it's, nope, it still is, but they have the ball. I would say it's, Alabama it's football time. is one of my hidden passions in life. I've just, I'm attracted to excellence. I always have been. I don't know why I hang out with you, but I always have been. And Alabama football epitomizes excellence. I hate excellence. 
Yeah, says a man who hosts three a tennis show. Um, but with that said, uh, as always, a shout out as always to our super producer, Daniel Westoff, for the <laughs> fanatic job he does day in, day out. Shout out as well to our friends at Tennis Point, tennis-point.com. The promo code is CR15. With that said, for the fantastic Gil Gross, who, by the way, this is a mini break, our super producer, Daniel Westoff, our friends at Tennis Point, from all of us here at both Crack Rackets and the Tennis Channel Podcast Network, I'm your host, Alex Gruskin. Gil, what do we tell our listeners? That's the f- break. <laughs> <laughs> and I will see you tomorrow. Thank you as always, my friend. <laughs> <laughs>